welcome to On Focus, brought to you by the Focal Therapy Clinic, where we connect you with issues facing men diagnosed with prostate cancer that are little known, less understood, often avoided, or even ignored. Prostate cancer is the most commonly diagnosed cancer amongst men in the UK. And with this somber fact comes a multitude of challenges and opportunities. I'm Claire Delmar. Joining me today is Raj Nigam, consultant urologist at the Royal Surrey NHS Foundation Trust and the Focal Therapy Clinic. Raj is an andrologist with a special interest in the impact of prostate cancer treatment on sexual and mental health. And we've spoken several times before about age-related implications of prostate cancer treatment. He's here today to discuss a range of issues that have evolved since the pandemic that are impacting how men with localized prostate cancer are being diagnosed and treated. Raj, it's a pleasure to have you again and sorry it's taken so long. Thanks for joining me today. Glad to be back, Claire. Good, good. Well, the last time we spoke, the pandemic was very much driving the behaviors of men and indeed clinicians and other um, hospital staff in terms of visiting a GP. And as a consequence, you observed an increase in later stage prostate cancers. And I'm wondering, have you seen an improvement to this? Have you seen any change at all? Is there things we should be concerned about, things we can do? Yeah, I think that there's probably a slight shift, but it's not massive at the moment, because I still think that we're in the aftermath, if you like, of the pandemic. Uh, There are a lot of men who uh, resisted going to see their doctors or their uh, accessibility to their doctors was poor, and, and they've lived with vague symptoms for some time. So only now are we seeing, yes, they are going to have their PSA checked. Uh, and there were some who had their PSA checked um, at the beginning of the pandemic, and then everything was left in abeyance. Mm. Um, they either were not referred uh, and, and so on, and they're now sort of uh, going back into the mainstream, as it were. I've been talking to a number of men fairly recently, whereby I've seen, um, oh, there's a two-year gap between their PSA follow-ups. And then they explain uh, that, well, yes, they had one done and then they didn't follow it up. They had been having it followed up for two or three years. And some of them, sadly, have had a massive jump uh, in those two or three years. Um, So we're not really seeing uh, us back to normality. And of course, uh, in uh, in the secondary care sector, a lot of hospitals are still very, very pushed in terms of doing prompt diagnosis and prompt treatment because of the waiting lists that, that have occurred. Mm-hmm. I know. We, I remember talking about that before. And I mean, even just, you know, paying attention to the to the media, so to speak, that doesn't seem to have abated. I guess, you know, that kind of leads me to ask about second opinions, because we have certainly seen at the clinic a marked increase in men coming, seeking a second opinion on their prostate cancer diagnosis um, and their recommended treatment, both. Uh, what, what do you think this means? Yeah, I mean, I think that this is a reflection on increased or improved uh, communication, uh, both in digital means and, and by people willing to talk to their friends and, uh, and, and relatives and, and so on about treatments that are available. Within the public sector system, there are two standard offerings, and both of them are what we call whole gland approaches. As you know, we are focused very much on treating the prostate cancer where it lies and trying to preserve uh, other structures and neighboring tissue, uh, which is unaffected by the cancer, Mm -hmm. uh, which is a a concept well understood in many other organs in the body, but hasn't really gained a wider acceptance um, in prostate cancer but beginning to do so. Mm -hmm. And I think that, uh, like I said, uh, people asking for second opinions is a willingness to say, well, actually, yes, I do respect my local doctors and what they're saying, but they may be restricted in what they can offer. 
Um, mm-hmm. And so therefore, I'm going to try and find out from reputable sources what else may be out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, the internet, we all know, can be a minefield. Uh, but there are you know, established, you know, regular uh, treatments which are being offered in the private sector and in other NHS hospitals, I hasten to add, mm-hmm. which may not be available uh, within their own locality. And it, and it brings me to the point which I think I've made before, that NHS England has decreed that you have not consented your patient properly uh, in terms of prostate cancer treatments unless you have discussed all the options of treatment, including those that you do not offer yourself. And all too often we're seeing that last statement being not so much ignored, but not heeded to, shall mm. we say, in the sense that people don't think, oh, yes, there is something else out there. We don't offer it here. But actually, why don't you go and, and try and find out if you can uh, get, get this treatment elsewhere? Mm. So, yes, I mean, I think that there is a wider acceptance that uh, the Internet may give you better information. And after all, information is key. And, um, you know, those of us in the focal therapy clinic are well-established prostate cancer experts primarily and secondarily as focal uh, Mm -hmm. therapy experts. So Mm -hmm. therefore, we can give them an opinion on whether um, what they're being offered is absolutely the right treatment for them or whether, yes, you know, there are other options available to them. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's interesting um, that you sort of compare, you know, sort of a lack of information that some men receive from their um, actual clinicians, um, but then there's an overabundance of information on the internet. And, you know, we see this reflected in a lot of the comments that men who come to us make. And it makes me wonder, you know, about how many men are actually misinformed about prostate cancer and about the range of treatments. So what, what would you suggest can be done to improve this? I mean, at at the at the clinical level, I mean, you obviously can't do anything about, you know, the internet, but certainly at uh, at the clinical level. Yeah, no, sure. And and basically, I think that those patients that do come to us, uh, you know, we've actually created, if you like, clinical champions in some of our patients. As you know, mm-hmm. a lot of our patients uh, are drivers for this treatment and um, and for, for men to get the appropriate treatment with the minimal side effects. And they are willing to act as, as patient advocates, if you like, that they're very happy to discuss their experiences and so on. Of course, they can't decide on whether that particular patient would be suitable. Mm-hmm. Um, but we often do find that peer-to-peer talking and discussion and communication is vitally important, not just for the patient themselves, but also for their partners. Indeed, um, indeed. Uh, that uh, that they find that helpful to discuss, you know, if you like, a commonality in in their suffering, if you like, mm-hmm. uh, and going, going through the pathway and the process. And they love to talk to people who have come the other side of it. Um, you Indeed. know, have survived, uh, you know, several years and have come through the treatment and so on and so forth. So we find that that at a clinical level is a very, very powerful tool. We find that, yes, we give them all the scientific data, which some patients find very useful and reassuring. But I think it's also the fact that they're reassured by the fact that uh, some of us have been doing it for a long time. Yes. Um, and uh, and it's that experience in, in the doctor uh, that they would see rather than some newfangled treatment uh, mm-hmm. that they've just found on the Internet. And I always say to my patients that, look, uh, this treatment has actually been around for 25, 30 years, particularly high intensity ultrasound and cryotherapy has been around for many years as well. Um, but that if there was a new focal treatment, and, and we are looking at one at the moment, um, then we would make sure that, you know, we'd researched it properly and so on, and that it was appropriate for that particular patient. Mm, um, mm-hmm. 
It's so, really, it's, that's very important. I mean, and I, I want to pick up on the point about, you know, being an experienced um, clinician and how that reassures and, you know, brings confidence to patients. And and that leads me to think about training in focal therapy. And um, I just want to point out to our listeners that, that you're one of the focal therapy specialists that will be contributing to the Imperial College London's masterclass in September on focal therapy, which is aimed at, at other clinicians. And, and I'm wondering how you think that about more clinicians coming forward um, to these events, does, does that reflect uh, a growing interest in focal therapy? Yes, I mean, the, the focal therapy masterclass is uh, in its relative infancy. Uh, I was involved in, in teaching and training uh, on the first one, which was now three years ago. And then the, uh, the last one got put back because of the pandemic. So we're very much looking forward to welcoming clinicians that have been there before and also newer clinicians mm -hmm. and so on. Um, you see that, that there is a pathway in focal therapy. Uh, the end result, if you like, is actually having the focal therapy treatment. Uh, the training starts right from initial uh, learning about selection and correct patient selection. Mm -hmm. um, all the tools that we have in medicine for all the treatments and all the conditions, it's very much choosing the right treatment for the right patient mm -hmm. uh, and also ideally getting it right first time. Uh, so that is where the training actually starts. So the, the masterclass, uh, you know, is is right based upon selection and selection criteria, as well as appropriate and good uh, imaging. Um, and that is key to to all of our treatments that we offer. Mm, of course. Uh, we now have multiparametric MRI scanning, um, and it has to be uh, done correctly in a, in a unit uh, that, that does lots of them. And mm -hmm. then the next process is obviously the, the biopsies and the types of biopsies that we do. And we're involved with every stage of that process mm -hmm. um, in, in terms of diagnosis, as well as, you know, leading on to precision, precision treatments. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So you've alluded to other forms of focal therapy treatment as well. And then, of course, your explanation um, just now about the whole pathway. And, you know, given the pace of development in, in both the diagnostics, as you've just explained, the, the different modalities and, and the acceptance of focal therapy over the last five, 10, 10 years, how do you predict patients' knowledge of this and, and their access to focal therapy will change in the next five years? Well, I, I would hope that it would improve significantly. And, uh, you know, there, there are a number of studies that, uh, you know, are focused upon that. Um, firstly, of course, patients need to have a wider understanding of what the side effects of treatments are, mm -hmm. um, at least those that are standard and those that are offered. And there has been um, a published uh, study fr from the True North Foundation, which is a, a global organization funded by Movember, um, and they've produced a paper already on the, the what they call the true results of a radical prostatectomy, for example, mm -hmm. whereby they, they did not ask the clinicians involved. They just went directly to the patients and, uh, and did questionnaires on the true burden of uh, the side effects from such a procedure. And mm -hmm. a similar one is taking place in, in radiation. Um, mm. So firstly, patients need to know uh, truly what, what are the side effects uh, that, that are with the existing treatments. But also, I think that um, even at the right beginning of the pathway, where uh, a lot of patients know about perhaps getting their PSA tested, but they don't necessarily know what the next stage should be. And there is a study called the Prostagram uh, study mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, where a few the local hospitals are selecting men just to have the, if you like, the male equivalent of a mammogram. Mm -hmm. So 
breast cancer screening is well established, um, you know, in the United Kingdom and in parts of Europe. Um, but prostate cancer screening certainly does not have the, the direct evidence base, if you like, nor even the, the will from politicians mm-hmm. um, to, uh, to have a prostate cancer screening program. And there have always been problems with the PSA tests, which we all know in terms of cutoffs and also di- over-diagnosing men um, and also over-biopsying men, uh, you know, with elevated PSA levels. So mm-hmm. we've mm-hmm. always been looking for a better test. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, we had the multiparametric MRI, but that was deemed to be too long and too cumbersome and too expensive um, for broad-based screening. So uh, a biparametric scan or a fast scan, if you like, um, has been developed whereby no contrast is given, takes about 10 minutes to do, and it's actually being marketed for primary care. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I should GPs have direct access to a good quality biparametric MRI scan, and will that pick up men with significant prostate cancers early mm-hmm. enough. So it actually um, helps in the selection that you referred to earlier, which is really integral to um, to any kind of focal it, therapy it, offer. Exactly. And also mm-hmm. it, it, it feeds into, you know, patient knowledge. I mean, there isn't a woman around, I guess, who hasn't heard of a mammogram. Of course. Um, yeah. uh, but how many men have heard of a prostogram? So mm-hmm. so I think it's it's getting that out in the in the wider public health domain. Uh, yeah, that is yeah no, it's important. We, in fact, um, um, I did a, <clears throat> a blog about this two weeks ago, exactly about, you know, in, increases in imaging or. Uh, and how that will actually help screening. But I just want to pick up on this True North Foundation study because I'm not personally familiar with that. Is that a recent um, report? Uh, Yeah, it's a fairly recent report, but the the True North, um, uh, like I said, funded by Movember, Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. picked out eight eight projects um, uh, in the UK um, and, and different aspects of what they called survivorship. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in prostate cancer. Uh, so some of them were related to the side effects that patients experienced and, and how those could be overcome. Some of them were for more advanced disease. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of them, which was led by Caroline Moore at University College, mm-hmm. was based upon post-radical prostatectomy uh, follow-up okay. and, and, and what sort of side effects uh, you know, were experienced by those men. And like I said, it was a, a unbiased study insofar as it, it went directly to the men that had had uh, the surgery rather than to the departments or to the surgeons that mm-hmm. had done it. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I'm going to so, make sure I find that and I'll um, yeah. make sure that goes into the program notes for our listeners. Well, Raj, um, as usual, you give so much food for thought and you know your experience and knowledge is just incredibly helpful for um, just you know sort of clarifying the ultimate complexities of this whole world of diagnostics and and treatment. So I want to thank you very much for joining me today as I know you're going off on holiday. So this was a real um, nice opportunity to grab you. Thanks again. Thanks again. That's very kind of you. Thank you, Claire. A transcript of this interview and links to Raj's practice are available in the program notes on our website, along with further information on diagnostics and treatment for prostate cancer and additional interviews and stories about living with prostate cancer please visit www.thefocaltherapyclinic.co.uk and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Focal Therapy Clinic. Thanks for listening. And from me, Claire Delmar, see you next time.